Good morning and welcome to Calvary Chapel. If you have your Bibles, please open with me to the book of Titus. We're going to look at Titus chapter 1. Let's open in prayer. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for all that you allow us to see, to experience. We look to you to instruct us and guide us and illuminate your truths through your Holy Spirit. We ask that during this time that you would increase our understanding, that you would increase our faith. And God, we pray if there's anyone here today that does not know you, would come to that saving knowledge of you or that person who's been week after week in the Lord, that is just coming to church but yet has never made that decision. They believe in you, but they've not come to that saving faith. Lord, we ask that you'd increase that faith. Lord, that they would know you and they would trust in you. And Lord, that they would have that assurance that as they believe and trust and rest in you, that they know that they will see you face to face in heaven one day. So we thank you, Lord, for what you're going to do and what you allow. Give us the understanding to know that you're still on the throne no matter what is going on. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, let's read our text together. It begins in verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of God and the apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even his word. In the proclamation, which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God, our Savior, to Titus, my true child in the common faith, grace and peace from God the Father, and Jesus Christ, our Savior, in this what a rather lengthy greeting but Paul here is emphasizing the importance of the word of God that's why we we come to the word of God we read it week and in and week out we study it verse by verse precept upon precept looking to understand the whole counsel of God's word I'm so confident that when a person continues in the Word, they they find the balance. And the balance is not in one book. The balance is not in prophecy. The balance is in Christ when you know God. John 17, 3 says, This is eternal life, knowing God. So we read with the intent to know God. What does this tell us about God? What is important? To God. Well, one of the things that we see in this text here is that, that the, the faithful leader preaches God's word. See, God raises up faithful men who will preach the word of God. The word of God is very, very significant to God because they're words of life. It's God speaking personally, intimately to each and every person here today if we'd only open our ears up to him. 
It says in the book of Revelation, speaking to the seven churches and to every church, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Everyone here has an ear. We are to make our ears intent. We are to come with expectation to hear from God. It's not about a bunch of facts, how much we can accumulate, not even how much we can quote, but do we know the true and living God? Do we know that his word indwells in our hearts? When we know this word, the truth, it's the truth that will set us free. This is why God raises up faithful men. He makes them faithful, makes them faithful leaders that they will preach the word of God. In fact, we saw the Apostle Paul. He says, woe to me if I do not preach the word of God. See, it's not the preacher that's so important. It's the content of that message. It's hearing about God. It's knowing about God, knowing what's right, what's wrong, how to get right, and how to stay right. Well, a faithful preacher must be committed to God's mastery. Well, let me show you first. We'll begin as we look at this faithful preacher. It's in verse 1. We see the, the name Paul, a bondservant of God, apostle of Jesus Christ. See, what we see in here is Paul's commitment to God's mastery. See, this involves the, the right theology. Theology is really the study of God. If you're reading the Word of God, you become a theologian. Each and every one of us should be able to describe who God is. We should be able to describe His nature and His character, His mercy and His compassion, His love and His grace, that we know Him that we can rest in him and trust in him. And when we speak the word of God, we know his word does not come back void. How important it is for this world to hear the word of God. So it begins with that right theology. And the theology, as I mentioned, is not just knowing about God, it's personally knowing him. And when we personally know him, our attitude is different. It's an attitude of awe. It's an attitude of submission. See, when we truly know God, we look at him differently, and that person that knows him has this work in his heart that is done, a, a humbling effect that he desires to live for God. He desires to glorify God, and he has a willingness to lay down his life for God. See, that's what... Paul's really talking about when he says, I'm a bondservant, because Paul has given up all of his rights for the sake of God's will and God's glory. A bondservant gives up all of his rights. He says, I'm no longer my own. I am a servant of my master who is so good to me. How can I live any other way? Well, Paul sees himself as a, a slave, a bond slave. That's what we're talking about. And notice, a, a bond slave of a, a supreme master. Secondly, he knows and sees himself as an envoy of the apostle 
of God. See, an envoy is one sent, and he's apostle sent by God. In fact, the apostle Paul was sent by Jesus. He was an eyewitness of Jesus, instructed by Jesus, and sent, sent on a mission. Now, the first that we talked about, that bondservant, it, it speaks of submission, submitting. That that's something that's very difficult for our flesh, but when we truly know him, when we truly understand his love, and the, that he wants the best for you, I mean, it's not hard to submit to that person who has already willingly laid down his life for us. But when he speaks of apostle, he's speaking, speaking secondly of authority. Now, the authority is, is not in the apostleship. The authority is in the message because the message is from the throne of God. Now, when we speak of this idea of submission, it's the, the fact is every one of us will bow a knee one day. We'll either willingly, as a bondservant, bow our knee today or one day in judgment, those unbelievers will also bow a knee not joyfully, miserably, sadly. Paul chooses to bow his knee right from the very start. Notice he became a bondservant. It speaks of his personal commitment to Jesus Christ. And he's apostle of divine appointment. And I believe for every believer that's been born again, if we've been born again, we too make a personal commitment. Because we've made him Lord and Savior, we too have a divine appointment because we've been given that great commission. Now, Paul's whole life is a, is a perfect example for you and me to live. It was a life of subjection to the Lord, the Lord and Savior. Every thought, every breath, every effort, he was under the, the mastery for God. He wanted to be everything that God would have him be. He wanted to glorify God in every way he could in his life. In fact, in Acts, if you remember Acts 20, verse 19, Paul speaking, serving the Lord with all humility and tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. He was willing to endure anything for the sake of God. He knew the best was yet to come. He got his gratification from being right in the middle of God's will. He truly submitted. He truly gave his life over to Jesus Christ. See, oftentimes people trust for their salvation in saying a sinner's prayer. That will never save you. It begins when you commit your life, your words, your thoughts, over to Jesus Christ. Now, Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. See, this is what's so important is Paul's life identified with Christ Jesus. And he says, it's not me living, but it's Christ living in me. See, he knew that Christ came into his heart. 
He knew that God put desires in his mind and his heart to do things. He knew that he was being led by the Spirit. And, and many of us know that, but some say, no, I'll do it my way. But Paul says, I'll do it your way. I will submit totally, completely to you. I want you to be the Lord of my life in every area of my life. You are the very reason I live that I will know you and I will be with you for all eternity in heaven. This life is like a vapor, James talks about. And Paul knew that. He knew and longed for what was to come. Think about Abraham, a wealthy man, had much. But where was his hope? He was looking for a city that was built by God. Always promised all the descendants, as numerous as the sense. It was wonderful. But what was really important is being in that heavenly city with God. A believer who has committed himself, a believer who wants to give his life totally for the Lord Jesus Christ, lives for the mastery of God. In Titus 1.10, notice what it says, for there are many rebellious men, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. In fact, in Titus 1.14, it says, and not paying attention to the Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. Paul understood what it was to lay down his life, and he's going to leave Titus here. Because of the problems there, there are, are many of these deceivers. There are many of them that are rebellious men. He describes them, we'll talk more about this later, but they're empty talkers, deceivers, and they were especially of the circumcision. That means that they were Jewish believers. But they had tainted the words. They had taken things out of context, what Paul had taught. They chose to believe what they wanted to believe, and they had to suppress the truth that would set them free. Now, they, they were leading people astray, leading them to follow Jewish myths, commandments of man, and demonstrating that they were really not even saved. They were trusting in works. And this is perhaps the very reason why Paul asserts his authority in the beginning. And he says, I'm a bondservant of Yahweh or Jehovah. Jehovah meaning that, that covenant God, which is his covenant name of God for Israel. So he speaks as a bondservant, committed, submitted, apostle. He speaks of the authority. Because the need was great. The authority that was in Paul is given to you and me through the Great Commission. That we would speak his word in love. Now the problem is is sometimes we do it on our own power and not by the Spirit. The Scripture is very clear. Not by power or might, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. See, Paul's specific duty to God was to fulfill his servanthood by being apostle of Jesus Christ. 
In fact, you find that in the beginning of the book of Romans and Corinthians, 1st and 2nd and Ephesians. It's been said as Apostle Paul's duties would have increased greatly. In fact, it was demanding greater faithfulness as he walked down that path. Greater submission and even greater sacrifice. But see, if a person is a truly a bondservant, these things will not matter because he's doing it for his Lord and Savior. He knows that this life is again like vapor, as I mentioned from James. In fact, Paul wrote, look with me in Philippians 2.17, but even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice a service of your faith. I rejoice and share my joy with all of you. Paul went through so much, but it was his joy. It was his blessing. He could do that for the one he loved, the one who laid down his own life for him. But how? How did he do that? I think Acts 4 kind of gives us a clue. Verse 33, notice with me on the screen. And with great power, the apostles... We're giving a testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice it says, an abundant grace was upon them all. One thing that you and I need, and I'm going to pull it from this particular verse today, is you need abundant grace upon you. Grace to hear and obey God's word. Grace to be a, a father. A grace to be a husband, a wife. We need God's grace. And then in Acts 6, 8, speaking about Stephen, if you remember, again, it says, and Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. And, and see, it was the grace, the power, as I mentioned earlier, it's not by power or might, but my spirit, says the Lord. See, we need God's grace and God's power, not the power of our flesh. It's in the power of our flesh that you and I will fail. Whatever you do in, in the power of the flesh for the Lord, it will crumble. It's called wood, hay, and stumble. Now, Paul knew he was just simply apostle. Apostle is a messenger of God. And what's interesting about messengers is, first of all, in most cases, they were the least, the, the lowliest. But they carried the message of someone else. And it's important to note that, again, that authority, the message was not derived from the messenger, but from the sender. When you're reading this book here, again, it's the message that Paul had presented. It is the word of God, but it came from the very throne of God, from the very mouth of God. Because he wants us to know to see example, to see what our faith is to look like when it's lived out. It becomes a, a checking point. How am I doing? Am I really honoring God? 
Many people are deceiving God because they're striving on their own power. They're doing work for God instead of God working through them. That was what the apostle did. See, God worked through him, put the very words in his mouth, and he will put the very words in your mouth. He'll bring the scriptures together exactly what you need on that right time. If you're helpless and dependent upon him, if you're submitted to him, and that's where it begins. Look with me again, and also in verse 1, we see a faithful leader. He must have a commitment to God's mission. And that's true for us. We're not here just to collect information, to store it, to be able to spew it out when we talk to someone. See, the pastor's job is to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. And the question is, are, are we doing the work of the ministry? Are we doing what God has already called us to do, in fact, even sent us to do, as I mentioned, that great commission? Well, look with me again in verse 1. For, notice, it's for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness and the hope of eternal life. See, because of Paul's commitment to God's mastery, we see that he was steadfast to the mission that God has called him to. His focus is upon God's purpose, God's will, God's plan. And this is true, again, for every picture. It binds upon every preacher, every teacher, and even in a more common sense, every church leader and every believer. We should be steadfast to God's mission. But what is God's mission, many might ask? It's all about kingdom business. Sadly, there's those that might say it's, it's about Baptist business. It's about Lutheran business. It's not about any denomination. It's all about Jesus. Now, our mission is seen here in our text. It involves three different areas. First, we'll see is evangelism. Secondly, we'll look at edification. Thirdly, encouragement. See, every one of us should be evangelizing in some way. Every one of us should be to edify and build up one another and encourage one another. And if I would ask you to hold up your hand, and I won't, how many need encouragement here? And I believe every person here needs to hold up their hand because we all need encouragement. Encouragement to press on the Lord. Encouragement to be that godly husband, that godly father, that godly worker, that godly manager of a business. Because the world needs to see Jesus. And the world needs to see Jesus in our lives. Just as we look at Paul's life, we, we see Jesus. We see Jesus at work in him. We see Jesus working through him. Well, again, let's look in verse 1 again. We see that for the faith of those chosen. We see that God's mission involves that evangelism and the discipleship of the saints. For the faith, I mean, either 
be bringing them to faith, which would be evangelism, or the conversion in that first place, and then leading them on in faith after salvation to continue to grow in that love and grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. But since the phrase, notice there in our text, is the knowledge of the truth probably speaks about making disciples. Now you remember in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, Notice again, it's the Great Commission. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always until the end of the age. Now sadly, there are those evangelical preachers and teachers today that say the simple teaching of God's word in the biblical gospel is not relevant to modern man today. This is the way that God appointed people to come in to the saving knowledge of him. Now remember, the authority is in the sender. Not in what you're doing, I'm doing, other than he's doing it through us. Now when Paul, if you remember, spoke in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 2, he said this. When I came to you, brother, and I did not come with, notice, superiority of speech or wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, but I determined to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is what the unbelieving world needs to know. They are hopeless. There are many looking for hope, and they're looking in the wrong places, looking for love, thinking that will satisfy, looking into a bottle, looking into drugs. None of that can ever satisfy that deep need for Jesus Christ, and only knowing that Jesus Christ can satisfy that when we trust and believe in him, that our sins are taken away, separated as far as the east is from the west. That we can have forgiveness and feel cleansed and washed and pured and accepted and loved. Jesus Christ died upon the cross for every person in this world before they were even born for many of them. That's the message it's the message of Jesus Christ. Now, it's a truth that leads to godliness when we talk about this passage because those who claim to speak the true message of Christ must be ready to have their message judged, whether it be true or does it produce godly character in the way they live out their lives. See, the message of the cross will produce a different character. It will produce God-likeness. The same is true for you and me when we profess Christ, that we believe in him. And that faith, if it is real faith, will produce a Christ-like character and behavior. 
And that's what's important. It, it's the message. The power's in there. It changes our life. We recognize our sinfulness. We recognize that need of Jesus Christ. Paul had this important to understand. A commitment to this mission. Yes, evangelize. Wherever he would go, he would go on the first three Sabbaths to the Jewish people, his brethren, and then he would take it to the Gentiles. He had a commitment. He knew what God had called him to do. Well, it's a truth, again, that leads to godliness. And God's mission also involves the edification of the saints. Look again at verse 1. We already mentioned a little bit in, in that the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. Notice Paul's second responsibility is, is fulfilling the, the commitment to God's mission. It's, it's edifying the saints. Well, how do we edify the saints? How do we edify one another? How? By the simple teaching of God's word. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns, praying with one another, explaining the text to one another, telling what God's doing in their life and what God's showing, being accountable to one another. But another thing is for the pastor is he's bringing the full counsel of God's word. That means he teaches the whole word of God. And that's so important to understand. Now, notice the word knowledge translates from a, a word called it, epignosis, which refers to the clear perception of the truth. Paul has in mind this saving truth, the truth that sets a person free. It's what we call the sanctifying truth. It is the good news of Jesus Christ. Well, doctrinally, you may not be the theologian that Paul was, but you know what Jesus Christ has done for you. The message of the cross. The message that he, God became man, lived a sinless life, willingly went and paid the price by dying upon the cross, and he was raised on the third day. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. He has died for their sins, and believing in him, they can have eternal life. That's not just length of time. That's a quality of life. That means even when things seem difficult, painful, there can be joy in a person's life. Like Abraham, they're, they're looking for the city built by God. They understand the best is yet to come. Now, the very heart of God, think about this. 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4, notice what it says. This is good, acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So here's God's desire, number one, that all men come to the saving knowledge of the truth, but not all men will. We know just even maybe in your own life, you rejected God for many years before you became a believer. But it's God's desire. No how, matter how wicked, how evil a person is, God desires that they would be saved. 
that they would come to that knowledge of the truth, that they would become a new creation in Christ. They'd no longer be the same wicked, evil people, but they would be loving people, gracious people, humble people, humbly dependent upon God to guide them and direct them. And 2 Timothy 2.25 says this, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. This should be our heart as well. Those that may really disturb you, grieve you, we need to pray, God, save them. That they would, that you would grant them Again, that repentance that leads to the knowledge of truth that they would put their trust and faith in you and they would be a testimony to you. Because that's his heart. Notice the contrast to this. There are those in 2 Timothy 3.7. Notice they're always learning. Never able to come to the knowledge of truth. They, They like darkness more than light. Not everyone will come to the saving knowledge of the truth, but we go out and we bring the Great Commission. We're not the one that decides who will and who won't, and God allows them to make that choice. They'll either choose to receive that free grace or they will reject it and suppress that truth that will set them free. Now, these are those who reject and refuse to believe the very thing that would save them. They suppress that truth. But in contrast, those who believe and trust in Jesus, something happens within them. And there are many things that happen. But in 1 Peter 2, 2, notice what it says. Like newborn babes, they long for the pure milk of the word so that by it they might grow in respect to salvation. See, a believer, when he is born again, has a desire to hear from God. They hang upon the words. They love to pray. They love to be in fellowship. If they're not nurtured, if they're not discipled, they tend to become just pew sitters. That knowledge that they had never led them to the faith of who Jesus Christ is. Oh, they believed in Jesus Christ. Even the demons believe in Jesus Christ. But that belief never turned to a saving faith that trusts and rests in Jesus Christ. And I think that's a good question. Has our belief turned into that saving faith? Is there a change in our lives? Do people see Christ in us? Do we have that hunger for the Word of God, the hunger and thirst for righteousness as talked about in the book of Matthew? Now look at the heart again in Titus chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Now this is the appearance of Jesus Christ. Salvation is available to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires to live sensibly, righteously, godly in this present age. 
Notice what the truth does, how it edifies, builds up, even convicts people, challenges people to look at their own hearts. D. Edmund Hebert, in his commentary for Titus and Philemon, wrote this. There's an intimate connection between truth and godliness. A vital possession of the truth is inconsistent with irreverence. Real truth never deviates from a path of piety. A profession of the truth which allows an individual to live in ungodliness is a spurious profession. Sadly, there are many who profess Jesus Christ in that day when God calls us home will not go home to be with him because they've never trusted, they've never become a believer. Now the spiritual leader, the messenger, the pastor, the teacher of Christ is to be devoted to proclaiming the gospel message, God's word, the whole counsel of God's word, which the spirit then edifies a believer, instructs and trains him in righteousness. This is why we teach the whole word. Because it's, it's not me, it's the message of the word of God, and the Holy Spirit takes this word and works in the person of God. Well, again, the, the, the faithful leader, he focuses on God's mission, and God's mission involves the encouragement of the saints. That's in verse 2. Notice what it says, in the hope of eternal life. Is there anyone looking for that hope today? That maybe this would be the day that he would bring us home to be with him? See, that's the eternal hope. Knowing that he's spoken, knowing that he doesn't lie, knowing that he's coming for you and me soon. This is really the third responsibility in fulfilling his commitment to, to God's mission. It's bringing biblical encouragement to the believers. It's based upon really those divinely guaranteed hope that we find in the scripture of eternal life. That one day each one of us will be glorified completely wholly perfected in Christ's own righteousness. One day he's going to finish the work in each of us. We'll be purged of anything that's evil, wicked. There'll no longer be any more sinful flesh. No more evil desires in our minds, in our hearts. We'll never say anything negative again, hurtful again. James describes the tongue like a fire. It will no longer burn. In Titus chapter 3, verse 7, notice what it says. And so that being justified by his grace, we would be again made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That hope is not something I, I hope I'll be there. I hope. And yet I've talked to many people, I hope I'll be good enough to go to heaven. No one is good enough to go to heaven. 
It must be that we're resting and trusting in the righteousness of a Savior, Jesus Christ. We must be able to explain that, turn to scriptures and point and encourage one another. The enemy is so good at it coming down upon you and discouraging you and finding fault with you. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22 on the screen. It says, who also sealed us, gave us a spirit in our hearts as a pledge. We're sealed. We're sealed in, until that day. We're kept, the scripture says, by the power of God until that day. We have that assurance of that hope. He's given us the spirit in our hearts as a pledge. It's a promise like a ring. This shows, again, that his spirit testifies with our spirit that one day we're going to be with him. And those true believers understand that. And it's not to say the enemy doesn't throw these fiery darts and, and, and try to get you to be discouraged, but when you and I continue to read the Scripture, when we speak the Scripture to one another, when someone is downcast and we give the Scripture to them, their eyes just sparkle. They're reminded of that hope in Jesus. It's not based upon their righteousness, but it's based upon his righteousness. Look with me in Ephesians 1, verse 13 and 14. In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who's given us a pledge of inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession and praise of his glory. You're sealed. You're kept to that day. That should just make you sparkle and be joyful knowing it doesn't depend upon you. It depends upon a faithful God. And our part is to simply as a, as a bondservant just to submit to him. That when we, we blow it, that we, we come to him and say, God, I, I, I blew it. I'm sorry. Forgive me. Give me the grace, the strength that I do not return like a dog to its vomit. There's a lot of people with professing believers in the body of Christ do not understand will they go to heaven for sure. Look at 1 John 5.13. These things that I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Isn't it wonderful? God wants you to know that you have eternal life. Boy, doesn't that change the day, how we look at the day? Isn't that wonderful to know that when you and I feel like we've fallen short of the glory of God, and we have, that we can have that assurance that we have eternal life? Well, this verse also is pointing out the fact that you already have eternal life. Because the Spirit of God is living in you and changing you and transforming you. And he uses those times that seem so difficult, those times that you've fallen short, to begin changing you, giving you new desires to be like Christ. The idea is that eternal life is the reality of salvation and that hope is after. If you've been born again today, you have eternal life. And this is one of the ways that we can encourage one another. 
that assurance, if you are in Christ, you are a born-again believer. You have a hope, a hope that the world does not have. The hope of eternal life gives encouragement to serve. When you know you're saved, you know that you're being saved, you know that you will be saved, and you can't help but want to serve. You can't help but want to tell someone else what God has done in your heart, what God is showing you. The hope of eternal life also gives encouragement to endure when things are difficult, when the pressures seem to be unbearable. And those that you might have known that have been taken, they've been taken to be with the Lord and in his presence is fullness of joy forever. When God's mission involves the commitment to God's message. Notice again in verse 1, and in 2, all the way through 3, it says, which God who cannot lie promise long ages ago, but in the prom- proper time manifested even his word. See, this involves presenting the author's intent. It's not our own agenda, but what people need to hear is, here's God's word. God cannot lie. Cannot lie is self-evident as well as scripturally attested and proved. That when God gives you a promise, you know it's amen, it's done. We see the same thing in the, in the prophet Samuel reminded the disobedient King Saul, if you remember, that God, the God of glory of Israel, will not lie. And it's our children. We, we should never lie because God does not lie. It's not his nature. I love Hebrews 6, 18. So that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie. And we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. Unchangeable truths. Impossible for God to lie. It defies his nature. He cannot lie. In fact, look at John 8, 44. You of your father, the devil. You want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. And whatever he speaks, a lie, he speaks from his own nature. And for he is a liar and the father of lies. There's no justification for any lies. We can't say, well, the, the means justifies the, the end. Well, it really turned out good. We told a lie, but everything worked out fine. No, that's not the nature of God. God is a God of truth. And he has promised long ages ago that those who have chosen those who come to the faith in him through him, the truth leads to Godness, have a certain hope of eternal life. Each and every day you walk in that eternal life. And it was given long ages ago, which means before even ancient human history. It actually means before time even began. 
Look at 2 Timothy 1.9 with me. Who has saved us, who has called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which is granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity before the world was created. God knew you, planned salvation for you. Not all will receive it. Many will reject it. Now look with me in 2 Timothy 2.15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We need to be diligently to present ourselves approved to God. We need, we need to rightly divide the word of truth, which means we need to understand really what God's will, what was God's intent in this text. We're not to read into it. We're to take out of it what God is saying. This is how we accurately handle the word of God. People take a verse and they say it means this and they twist it. That's not accurately handling the word of God. They use it to justify some situation. It doesn't take a whole lot to edify and encourage believers when we simply point them to Jesus Christ. If we're just faithful to present the pure, the whole word of God. I was visiting Life Care and a, a woman, I would go in and visit her and, and she would grumble and murmur about the things that she's going through and and I said, let me pray for you. And I'd pray for her. And then I'd begin to read the word of God. And all of a sudden, this sparkle would come upon her face. She's reminded of that hope. You want a person's grumbling and murmuring? They do not have their eyes fixed on the author and finisher of their faith. They, they're not fixed upon that hope. They're fixed upon the moment. They're fixed upon the earthly. And we need to put our eyes, our hearts, our minds in heaven. And we realize when the best is yet to come, it will cause us to look at this world differently, live differently, and live for him as a bondservant. John six thirty seven says this, And all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. See, if you truly come to the Lord Jesus Christ, you put your trust and faith completely upon him, you become his workmanship. He will not cast you out. And again, as I mentioned, you're kept by the power of God. John 6, 40 goes on, for this is the will of the Father that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up in that last day. When these bodies go to sleep. One day our spirit will be raised to be with the Lord forever. The spirit is the real person inside you and me. 1 Peter 1.23 says this for you, have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living, enduring word of God. How's a person born again? Hearing that word of God. This is why it's so important that you and I bring the word of God. Because as a person hears that word of God, 
Faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. When you, you come to know Jesus Christ, what he's done, why he's done it. Jesus loves you with an everlasting love. When you're in pain, when you're in suffering, he inclines his ear to hear from you when you can't even get the words out. He hears, he knows. You can be so aware of his presence in that time if you just put your eyes upon Jesus. Well, there's another point I want to bring your attention to. It's in verse 3 we'll look at. God's mission involves the commitment to God's means. Look with me. In the proclamation which I was trusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. We find that fourth principle, Paul's life. The, the ministry was a commitment to God's own way of fulfilling the ministry, which he's called. It's a proclamation that is his and his complete inherent word of God. Today there are those that say, well, God, I'll get this for you. Your word's not as relevant today. They need something else. You're saying God doesn't understand that you're wiser than God? God's word is timeless. The message is timeless. It's the message that every person in this world needs to hear, whether they want to hear it or not. But if they open their hearts up, it's a message that will change their lives. See, the proclamation or proclaiming, the heralding of a message, think of Noah for a second. He was given a, a prophetic insight about the future world which he lived. God had declared to him that the, the end was to come, the judgment was on the way. And he was called a, a preacher of righteousness. I like that. What a wonderful thing if somebody would come up to me and I'm not saying come up and tell me, but, but think about this. He preaches the righteousness of God. And this only happens is when we give ourselves over to God. He is the one that makes us faithful. Think again in 2 Peter 2.5 and, and do not spare the ancient world but preserve Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others. And when he brought the flood upon the world of the ungodly, the, those seven who responded, they saw God in his life and they heard that message. They were saved because they believed the message. They went into the ark. They trusted in what God had said. And that's the question. Do we trust in what God has said to us? The responsibility of the herald is just to simply give God's message, God's way, and in God's time. The fact is, each of us are to herald the message. We're given that great commission. We're to go into all the world. We're to preach the gospel to every living creature. We need to preach the message that God is coming again. In fact, in 2 Timothy, we saw how important it is that we're to preach the word, to be ready in season and out of season. We're to reprove when necessary, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. That means to be ready when it's convenient, when it's not convenient. We're, we're to proclaim God's word. We're not to create our own messages from our own wisdom and cleverness, 
We're not to try and manipulate or sway people together by the means of our own persuasiveness or charisma. Or if an altar call was done, to say, well, if I just done another course, I would have got more people. It doesn't depend upon you. It depends upon a faithful God. God's the one that draws people to himself. We simply present the message. The power is not in us. The power is in the message. It is God's message. It's God's word. And God's Holy Spirit takes that message and works in the heart of the person. And I love that. It frees us. We simply bring the message. Now, it's interesting when we stop and think it, but, but it's by this expository teaching or preaching of God's word. We, we explain it, and we explain it systematically. We're going through the, the whole scripture. We're to thoroughly explain the meaning of the scripture and, and God's intent and God's way. Notice again, 1 Corinthians one twenty one. For since the wisdom of the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. It's a message. It's, it's not in me. There's God's part. He initiates. He convicts you. you you'll either respond or you'll reject. He draws you. He he woos you with cords of love, but, but you can reject, resist, or can yield to the Holy Spirit. Reading John MacArthur, I like the way he put it, God's not reluctant to save people as some imaginary deities who must be appeased by their devotees and begging for merciful You don't have to beg God. You come just as you are. Jesus Christ died for you while you were in your worst. God's mission also involves the commitment to God's people. We see that in verse 4. Notice the letters written to Titus, my true child of common faith, grace and peace. From God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. A faithful fundamental principle was his commitment to God. He had a loyal devotion to those such as Titus. In fact, he called him the, the true child of the common faith. True meaning being lawfully begotten. A true child means a, a legitimate child. Notice the phrase used, common faith. It means the the true and saving faith. It it speaks of a a sound doctrine. It's healthy. That leads a person to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Titus was trustworthy. He was equipped and he was prepared to handle the foolish, worldly, troublesome church of Corinth because the word of God was in him. He shared that same common faith. He partook of the the sound word of God. And it's the same thing that he was born again on that he was to bring to others. It would give him the wisdom that he needed to handle each and every situation as he laid it before God and God would show him. 
And like Timothy, Titus was especially dear to Paul. Paul was his spiritual father and mentor. And we can only imagine the apostle's deep feeling as he wrote to his beloved. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Although God becomes our Heavenly Father of all who place their faith in Jesus Christ, Paul puts his emphasis upon the Father's unique relationship with this only begotten Son, the Savior, the Savior of the world. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, and whosoever believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. God's mission involves evangelism and discipleship in this lost world. God's mission involves edification of the saints, the building up of the saints. God's mission involves the encouragement of the saints. Father, thank you again for your love, your mercies that are new every morning. We thank you for your word that's living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. And Father, I pray if there's anyone listening here today that has never committed their life to you, that you would open up their hearts. They would make that decision to put their trust and faith in you. So Lord, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.